This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. Part two of our podcast with Ian Craig, who retired from his race calling craft 10 years ago. Ian, your entry into television came through a Sunday segment called Punter's Postmortem on Channel 7 Sports Program. How did that see the light of day? Well, my uh, entree into television was courtesy of Lenny Smith, who, as you know, was the boss at Harold Park for a long time and the man that uh, introduced the Miracle Mile. And Len wanted uh, television exposure for trotting, as you could understand, and Rex Mossop was the sports boss at Channel 7 at uh, that time, and uh, Len and Rex uh, decided that, um, yeah, that would be a good idea, so a trotting segment was uh, introduced, and Len asked if I would be interested in hosting it, so I said, certainly. So that's how it started, and we had um, the Greyhound segment, which was done by a guy called John Harrigan Mm. in the early days. And then, of course, Frank Kennedy came in, and then after Frank, uh, Graham McNeese, Paul Ambrosoli, and on the racing front, uh, we had Cliff Carey uh, at one stage, and of course, latterly, Max Presnell. So it was all moulded together under the banner of uh, punters post-mortem, but that's how it started uh, with Len Smith wanting a, a trotting uh, appearance on uh, television, and uh, that was my break on television. You called the Sydney Gallops. Just going back to uh, following your three years with 2UE, you had an offer from 2KY, which at the time was struggling at the bottom of the ratings, and they were in direct opposition to 2GB, 2UE and the ABC when it came to Saturday racing. So it was probably a mild surprise for you when they made you a job offer, which you accepted. Yeah, well, I was looking for uh, more opportunity to call uh, racing. And when the offer came about, I thought, well, yes, I'll uh, I'll accept. And uh, I remember going around to the... Uh, general manager's office to hand in my resignation and uh, he said Ian uh, okay I accept your uh, resignation but uh, do you know what you're doing I hope you do he said uh, it's a bit like joining 2AD Armadale with due respect to 2AD Armadale which was a a fine country station Mm. leaving as you said John um, a station like 2UE uh, a high rating station uh, for a station like 2KY, who, uh, with its format, was a, a much lesser rating radio station at that stage. How did you set up a racing service on 2KY, uh, given, uh, you know, the expense of interstate services? Well, uh, when it was decided to uh, embark on the Saturday service uh, in September 1974 was the kickoff. Um, we weren't networked, so we had to uh, uh, fussick around to try and find a, a service out of Melbourne. 
And that was provided by Channel 10, who were doing, or Channel O, as it was known in certain areas. Mm. Um, and we had a guy called Clem Dimsey, who was calling for uh, that television network mm. in those days. We had Keith Nowd in Brisbane, who was doing the public address, but uh, he was set up uh, by one of the radio stations who wasn't doing racing. They'd set the gear up uh, to assist 2KY. So we had Keith who was doing the public address uh, coming through on our airwaves in Sydney. And that's how it started, uh, John. With uh, no network, it was a very costly foray. When did you make your start on the Saturday racing service on 2KY? Must have been that, early 70s, was it? It was uh, 1974, the Saturday afternoon service started. We were doing a provincial service, the Thursday meetings, uh, for about 12, 15 months prior to that. And um, then the management decided, right, we'll try the Saturday afternoons. And uh, it kicked off uh, at Rose Hill on Hill Stakes Day in September 1974. Like a lover, I remember winning the Hill Stakes beating Passatrul. Mm. Passatrul, <coughs> I think, went on to win a Metropolitan later. Yes, he did. He did. Actually, it was interesting. The uh, the first feature race uh, I did after uh, we started the Saturday service in 1974 was the um, Epsom Handicap, and uh, it was won by a horse you'll remember well called Citadel, mm. and he was ridden by uh, Gordon Spinks. And at that stage, he was being trained by Noel Kelly. He originally, as you would well remember, was trained up here by Jack Denham yeah. for Fox Investments. And he won the Epsom Handicap at big odds, 66 to 1. And the favourite uh, who ran down track in that race was uh, one of Jack Denham's, Purple Patch, who was ridden by Alan Denham. Mm. Yep. To look at Al today, it's hard to believe he was once a jockey and a very successful one. Yeah. Yeah. We had him on the podcast recently and I was reminded of the fact that he did win an Apprentices Premiership in Sydney with 50 and a half winners for the season in the 1970s. Yeah. It was the highest tally by an apprentice jockey since Jack Thompson had set the record 33 years earlier. Yeah, well, he was a classy uh, classy young rider and uh, what a good trainer he's turned out to be too, John. 1981 was the defining year when 2GB scrapped its racing service and 2KY virtually inherited the network and that made a hell of a difference to your station. Well, it did. It did. And uh, I'd venture to say because of the fact, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, that we weren't networked, the cost of putting a racing service to air was very, very expensive. It really was with landline charges, wages, etc., etc. And uh, I venture to say, had uh, Macquarie not decided to uh, take the action they did then in 1981, um, financially, I would have uh, thought it would have been nearly impossible for 2KY to continue. Yeah, you've always believed that, haven't you? That um, they got home by the skin of their teeth. Yes, well, that's right, exactly. You called the Sydney Gallops through a, a wonderful era and you've always said that Kingston Town was the best you've called. 
Do you have I a favourite win of Kingston Towns? Uh, look, John, I, I think that period in 1980 in the autumn when he uh, he won the Rose Hill Guineas and then he came out and won the Tancred and then he won the AJC Derby and the Sydney Cup all in a very confined period. Um, any of those races, uh, I think, um, were equal as far as my thrills were concerned. Uh, I must say, though, uh, when I saw him and called him when his very first race mm. uh, at uh, Rose Hill back at the, uh, would you believe it was the end of the financial year in 1979, so mm. it's just over 40 years uh, since he won that particular race, ridden by Malcolm Johnston at huge odds, mm. screaming home the wind running away. And uh, I think then it was uh, evident that we had a pretty good horse on our hands. But to pick out uh, the best race that he won, oh, probably the AJC Derby, I think, John. Yeah, effortless, wasn't it? And his Sydney Cup win the same year as yes. a three-year-old. He donkey-licked double century and yeah, won well, the Cup the year before. That's right. There's another memorable race um, that comes uh, into my mind right now, the uh, the AJC Derby that um, involved Double Century and Dulcify. Remember when Double Century was first passed the uh, post but created interference to Dulcify and the protest was quickly upheld? Very rare in a Group 1 to this day. Yeah. I think that was the first derby to be run in the autumn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But what a great horse to dulcify. Oh, well, he, his Cox Plate win later in his career was astonishing. And I think uh, the whole of Australia were deeply saddened by his terrible breakdown in the Melbourne Cup of 79, where he had to be euthanised. You know, in our talk here, John, uh, we talk about the AJC derby. It was probably my favourite race. Uh, I enjoyed calling Golden Slippers, but... Uh, Octagonal's derby will go down as one of the most memorable of uh, my race descriptions, uh, the way he was able to beat a halcyon field of three-year-olds. I mean, the Saintlies, uh, Falantes, nothing like a day. And what a period that was, but what a win in that race. That was in 1996, and yep. 40,000 people were at Randwick that day. I mean, there hadn't been a crowd like that at a at an Easter Saturday meeting in Sydney for many, many years, and the vintage crop of three-year-olds brought them to Randwick. Certainly, certainly, and what a horse he turned out to be, and another memorable race involving Octagonal, uh, the BMW in 1997, in that controversial finish when he beat Arcady, remember, and Dupin, promising horse, broke down, unfortunately, in the early stages. What a race that was. And remember when the number went up, I think the bulk of people thought that Arcady had won. Yeah. And when the number went up for Octagonal, remember the um, the uh, scenes at Rose Hill. Yeah, that was one of the most colourful days. Probably the nearest thing to the mania that Winks created. Yes, I'd agree with that. You know, and Ian, I've got to confess to this day, uh, I still think Arcady won. That was possibly the biggest shock I ever got. 
Yes, I was uh, in a box past the post and uh, from my view it was just a little bit difficult to try and uh, interpret but uh, to the naked eye and if it was a dicey angle, Rose Hill, wasn't it? Always. Uh, the, the naked eye always um, was uh, to the uh, point of being wrong, wrong on quite a number of occasions. The late Ken Howard had the best description for the Rose Hill angle. Ken simply said this dirty, filthy angle. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ian, another big race from Rose Hill that I've heard you talk about more than once was the 2003 BMW when the $31 pop Freemason nosed out the $1.45 racing idol northerly in a very, very close finish. And it was reminiscent, wasn't it, of... Waverly Star and Bone Crusher in the Cox Plate. They were head yep. and head for a long way from home. Yeah, exactly. From oh, probably 12, 1300 metres to go. I've never seen two top quality horses go hammer and tong for so far from the judge. Northerly Pat Payne and Freemason. Darren Beedman, and it was only a, a bob of the head on the line that uh, gave it to Freemason. But what a memorable battle! Freemason hadn't won a race for almost a year and just when people were crying fluke, up he bobbed and ran second in the Doombin Cup. Yeah, He yeah. franked the form. Yeah, Freemason, Northerly. What a wonderful horse, Northerly. Well, the Fighting Tiger, as Greg Miles christened him, and he won $9 million. Yep. Great racehorse. Yep. Yeah. Gee, John, as we sit back here and uh, reminisce, you know, in uh, uh, the broadcasting careers uh, that were very parallel, yours and mine, the horses that we've had the pleasure of calling outside uh, the ones we've mentioned already, but, uh, you know, Might and Power and Sunline and Lusk and Star, Lonro, I had a lot of pleasure calling Lonro. Uh, what about Superimpose? Mm. And naturally, uh, I uh, had Maccabi Diva um, for the uh, closing stages of my career. I think you'd uh, you'd finished uh, yes. your calling when Maccabi came on the scene. Yeah, never got to call the great mayor. Yeah, and um, take over Target. What a memorable horse he was. The completion of the Great Southern Sale in Melbourne brought down the curtain on a spectacular sales season for Inglis. In 2019, Inglis cleared an amazing 85% of all yearlings offered a Southern Hemisphere high. Inglis sold 19 of the 30 yearlings in Australia to make more than a million dollars, as well as the only two yearlings to sell for two million or more. Inglis graduates have won 20 individual Group 1 races for the season so far. Inglis ended the sales season as the Southern Hemisphere market leader. Entries for the classic Melbourne Premier, Australian Easter, Melbourne Gold and Scone Yearling sales will be open in early July. You'll find details and entry forms at inglis.com.au. Let's go back to 1982. Here's another race you called. Uh, destined to reach the annals of the all-time great in Australian racing history. Not so much because of the class of horse involved, but for the fact that it generated one of the biggest betting plungers in racing history. 
one bookie at Canterbury bet as much as 200 to 1 about a horse called Getting Closer, who finished up at $8 by the time they jumped. Yep. What are your memories of that incredible race that took $1 million out of bookmakers' bags around Australia? Yep, and written by Malcolm Johnston. I'll never forget it. In those days, um, we were prohibited under the uh, Gaming and Betting Act to give any sort of betting information, Mm. but uh, I believed in uh, trying to help uh, the audience as much as we could with what was happening on track, what horses were tending to ease a little bit or what horses were being backed. And from our vantage point at Canterbury at that time, uh, there's a little window uh, in the hallway at the back of our broadcasting box where you could put uh, your binoculars down into the betting ring Mm. and you could see the prices. So my offsider would uh, write down the prices and uh, he said to me, look at this horse, it's coming in, it's coming in all the time, getting closer. So we were able to relay this to our radio audience and, uh, yep, it never left it in doubt, getting closer. I think he just parked outside the leader and raced away to win easily. He'd had two previous starts, Ian, in Victoria for two nowheres. Yes. And it was a brilliantly contrived plan that uh, led to this amazing plunge and there were three high-profile bookmakers who were operating on the day at Canterbury, Rob Waterhouse, uh, Digger Lobb and Ray Hopkins, and they all said the same thing. They'd never seen anything like it. Yeah, the days of the the, uh, huge ring. Yeah, the 9th of January, 1982. Correct. And they had commission agents at race meetings at Townsville, uh, Rockhampton, Mackay, Southport, that would have been the trots probably, the Southport trots. Yes. Uh, Tweed Heads, trots, uh, and Ballina, and many Victorian tracks. It was Mm. cleverly executed. You know, you talk about uh, 200 to 1 being bet. It reminds me, John, of the the longest-priced winners uh, in Australian racing history that um, we both... uh, saw and called and tell in 1982 at Canterbury, 500 to 1, Jamie DeBellin, and Pablo's Pulse, Jamie DeBellin as well at Warwick Farm in 1987. Warwick Stakes. Warwick Stakes, 500 to 1. And by an incredible coincidence ridden by the same jockey, long retired and I haven't seen him for years, Jamie DeBellin. Jamie DeBellin, yep. I wonder where he is and what he's doing. Yes, well, there you are. And what of the uh, controversial missile stakes of 1984? No, never forget that. They couldn't get the starting gates into the correct position because they were becoming bogged in the mud. Mm. And the chief steward, John Shrek, made the very controversial decision to declare a flag start. Now, had the favourite won, there wouldn't have been a peep. But the winner, Pluvite started at 100 to 1. Yep, and written by Peter Myers. Yes, I'll never forget that day when uh, 
they lined up and uh, it was it was more like a hanky than a flag. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Peter Myers booting home Pluvite at uh, cricket score odds. Yeah, that was a memorable day. Rose Hill, nineteen eighty four. It caused a lot of unrest because it was it was a very straggly start, and one of the runners. Uh, missed the kick completely because somebody was standing in front of it. Yes. When they yeah, dropped the exact, flag. Exactly right. What about another amazing incident at Kembla Grange in the early 1970s? You were there this day, I wasn't, when a horse called Hot Chestnut stumbled near the line, dislodging jockey Ray Selkrig, <coughs> who was hanging around the horse's neck as it went yep. over the line. Well, remember that. It was a sensational race. As I mentioned earlier in our talk, uh, we were doing the provincial races on KY at that time. Yeah, he um, seemed to uh, prop. Uh, it's believed he sighted a, maybe a brown patch and um, he threw Ray out of the saddle and uh, Hot Chestnut kept going and so did Ray, holding onto the mane and reins yeah. and Ray's feet hit the ground, but he wouldn't let go until past the post. So subsequently, uh, an objection was lodged by the runner-up, mm-hmm. but stewards thought that the horse uh, did a harder job pulling Ray yeah. than carrying him, and the result stood. And uh, that really created a lot of um, controversy thereafter. Mm-hmm. But it um, happened that... Poor little Ray, when he let go of the horse's mane and reins, somehow the horse's back legs have collided with Ray, hit him in the pelvis and cracked the pelvis in three parts. Yes, he was out for a long time. Yes. But, Ian, I think the most salient point about that uh, incident was the the fact that the judge called for the photo immediately when he realised there'd been a very controversial incident. Mm. He called for the photo and on a viewing of that photo, it was clear that right on the line, as the horse went past the post, Selkrig's feet were not touching the ground. Yeah. And the stewards uh, decided that the horse had carried its full handicap full weight. weight over the line, and that's why yeah. they let the decision rest. Yeah, yep, fair enough. But as you said, Ray Selkrig... Uh, Remarkable little fellow, Ray Selkrieg, a great jockey with a, a most enviable record, still going strong in his mid-80s yes. and still a regular at Sydney race tracks. Exactly right, yeah. And uh, we long remember his memorable uh, Melbourne Cup win on Lord Fury, eh? Well, he went out there with a set plan to just run his sectionals at the same speed all the way. He was confident the horse would maintain a fast gallop for the entire two miles, and uh, the way he rated Lord Fury that day was quite amazing. Yep. Another piece of history occurred at a midweek meeting in 1983 when a little girl from Cowra called Jane Spence became the first female jockey to win against the men. You called the race. Certainly did, yeah. Canterbury in 1983. And uh, Jane Spence rode a horse called Our Fable. And uh, Our Fable was trained by a very good mentor from Cowra, Viv Miller. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, Jane, she was a classy writer. Uh, ultimately, uh, mar- her married name, Jane Parsons. But uh, yeah, I will remember that uh, particular day, John. You know, you were calling just as well at the finish at age 67 as you had been at age 47. Oh, thank you for that. Well, you really didn't need to stop. (laughs) I think you know when your time's up. (laughs) But uh, I suppose, um, you know, after all the years I'd done it, uh, it was was time. Just looking back over all of those years uh, in Sydney racing as a commentator, what were the supreme highlights? Well, the biggest highlight was getting my initial break, John. Um, the uh, the night that I uh, went out to Harold Park, really, uh, to call the trots. That was um, the biggest thrill, I think, in, in my whole career. Mm. The, the very first metropolitan broadcast. The night Yamamoto won the trot with J.D. Watts. Absolutely. You've got enough memories to last you a lifetime and I'm looking forward to sharing a few with you over a beer from time to time. Well, that will be very, very much anticipated and, uh, well, it's uh, lovely to talk to you, John. When we think back over all the years we worked alongside one another at uh, Randwick, Rose Hill, Warwick Farm and Canterbury, they were wonderful times and I do appreciate... uh, you giving me a ring today to reminisce. No, great to have you on the podcast, Ian. And as you said, we were next-door neighbours for a long, long time. And um, you used to give the fruitcake a bit of a hiding at afternoon tea time, though. Yeah, you always had a sweet tooth. But I tell you what, <laughs> I, I didn't enjoy the fruitcake as much as I enjoyed your jokes during the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, jokes are a thing of the past. I can't remember the last time I heard one. <laughs> Uh, it was a wonderful period. Thanks for talking to us on the podcast, Ian. Been a delight. Thank you, John. Appreciate your call. That was Ian Craig, and this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The recent Great Southern Sale at the beautifully renovated Oakland's Junction Complex was an outstanding success. The select weanlings offered on the first two days averaged over $32,000 with a clearance rate of almost 80%. 22 of them sold for $100,000 or more. The broodmares also enjoyed considerable increases across all key indicators. An average of 25,000 up 27%, a median of 8,000 up 45% and a gross of 5.1 million up 15%. Top of the market was again very strong with nine horses selling for $200,000 or more. Across four days of selling, the gross was almost 17.7 million up 11%. It's time for vendors to switch the attention to the 2020 yearling sales and entries will open in early July. Go to inglis.com.au.